Take your Bible and turn to it in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. As we learn the difference between sex and love. Yes, you can talk about this in church because it's right here in our Bible. So if you, have a, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the pew Bibles right in front of you and turn to page 676. Page 676 as we read Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Let's pray. Father, we come and we are thankful that you are a God of yeses. And yet, Lord, there are limits and boundaries to our freedom. And we are to love, and yet we need to know the difference between the love that you give to us and the love that is tempted, we are tempted by, that is offered by the world, and that is really saturated in our culture. And so we ask right now that you would enlighten us, that you would convict us, that you would speak to us through the preaching of this passage, and that your Spirit would remind us that cleansing... Forgiveness and a new heart is available in your Son, Jesus Christ. We all stand before you as sinners in need of your salvation, and we ask that you would work in and through what our pastor preaches, what you lay upon our hearts, what you know that each of us needs. We are an expectant people. In the name of Jesus, amen. Sex. Throughout the Bible, it's proclaimed as a good thing, a profound expression of love that forges a unique and powerful bond between a man and a woman. But along the way, something went seriously wrong. When humanity left their perfect and life-giving relationship with God, sin entered the scene and infected everything. Sin caused people to become disconnected from God, from each other, and from themselves. Sex, the ultimate connection between men and women, couldn't hide for long. Sin grabbed hold of sex and transformed it into something completely unrecognizable. This new form of sex had nothing to do with respect or commitment and everything to do with lust and control. It was no longer about two people becoming one. Sex became about the desires of the individual, a way for people to get what they want from one another. To put it plainly, sex became a transaction. And so sex strayed further and further away from God's original plan. Fast forward to today, and sex is everywhere. People are obsessed with it. 
Sex, which used to be a good thing, became an ultimate thing. Something that validates one's very existence and the reason for living. And with its new and elevated status came many promises. Promises it couldn't deliver, leaving an entire society feeling empty and disillusioned. But like any addiction, the answer is always more. More relationships, more romance, and of course, more sex. And it's in this endless search that we find ourselves. Sex is clearly broken, but it isn't the real problem. It's simply the crack on the surface. The real problem of sin goes much deeper, and its consequences are far more devastating. Here's the good news, though. There's still hope. God can redeem you and your sexuality. Sex can be a good thing again. I hope so, because God does. His Word proclaims that to us, and we want to proclaim that as well this morning as we continue in our series that we began last Sunday, a series we're calling Love, Sex, and Marriage. It's a series based on one chapter in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. It's a chapter, or a book, I should say, that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christ followers just like ourselves at a church in the city of Ephesus. And he obviously, in this chapter, is dealing with a subject, as he did back then, that is still so, well, let's just admit it, it consumes our lives even today, the subject of love, sex, and marriage. Now, uh, in case you weren't with us last Sunday, uh, maybe you were, maybe you weren't, but maybe you're wondering, why are you taking time to do a series on this topic? And one reason why is because if... Well, let's just be honest. Our, our culture is consumed with these three things. And in particular, the idea of love and sex. In marriage, well, since most people flame out in marriage, not so much as well. They kind of delay it or just avoid it altogether. Uh, but God has a lot to talk about. He has a lot to say in this area of our lives. Um, whether we want to admit it or not, I think you would have to agree with me that our culture has a message when it comes to love, sex, and marriage. We're bombarded with that message. Every day of our lives, we see the message visually through our TV, our computers, uh, the Internet, whatever the case may be. We hear this message, and we're being squeezed by the world's message in these areas. And so my goal through this series is simply to counter the culture's message in this area and to counter it with God's word, his truth. God has spoken in this, on this. And so I want us to renew our minds, if you will, of what God has to say on the area of love, sex, and marriage. Now, one way that we can renew our minds on this is obviously, like we are here, by hearing what God has to say through a sermon like this. Another way we can renew our minds is actually by reading God's Word for ourselves. And so I want to throw out a challenge before we get into the message here to you. As I said, we're, we're taking one chapter of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. It's 33 verses long. And my challenge to you is this. In the renewing of your mind to counter the culture is this week, read chapter 5, Ephesians. Read it once every day. Read the whole chapter, 33 verses. Starting tomorrow, read it once. 
Ephesians chapter 5. Tuesday, read it again. Wednesday, read it again. And, and my challenge is five times this week, read Ephesians chapter 5. And let yourself just soak up what God has to say of the area of love, sex, and marriage. Because I'm telling you, what you will read will be like, oh, wow. And we'll talk about it as the weeks go by. Today, specifically, what we want to talk about as we continue this morning is we want to talk about love and sex and, get this, why knowing the difference between the two makes all the difference in the world. Most of us have discovered through experience that love is complicated, sex isn't as simple as the birds and the bees, and relationships can get pretty messy, and marriage is hard. And when we fail to understand the difference between love and sex, we are destined to ruin both, and both are God's gifts to us. For example, research indicates that once an uncommitted, unmarried couple gets involved sexually, the relationship usually begins to end. Not always, but research indicates that most of the time that's what happens. Most women grow up thinking that the way to get love is to give sex. Most women grow up thinking that if I give sex in order to get love, that that will somehow continue the relationship. It will prolong the relationship. It will provide security for me in that relationship. And so they give sex in order to get love. Most men in our culture, in our society, grow up thinking and learning that the way to express love is to have sex. It's the most natural way that God has given us to express my love to a woman. Whether you're committed to that woman or not. But when the relationship between two people, begins to break down. Most people now in our culture wrongly assume that the problem is the other person. And so now we go back to last Sunday's message and we repeat our culture's formula. Instead of becoming the right person, I have to find the right person. Because obviously I didn't find the right person here. It didn't work out. And I didn't fall in love. And Well, I did, but now I'm falling out of love. Where God's plan for us is to begin step one of becoming the right person and walk in his love in our relationships with one another. You see, the real problem is we don't understand the difference between love and sex in our society. God designed love and sex to function in harmony within a committed relationship called marriage. We're going to talk about marriage at the end of this series here. What is marriage? What does it look like? What's a husband's role? What's a wife's role within marriage? Paul was very specific in defining marriage according to God's plan. But our culture has gotten confused about the difference between love and sex in at least two ways. First, we have tried to separate love and sex. We often describe sex, and we see this in sitcom TVs, movies, you name it. We describe sex as simply a harmless and meaningless form of casual entertainment between a couple that have no lasting commitment. Today's vernacular is often described as simply hooking up. Hooking up for the pleasure of sex. I'm not committed to you, you're not committed to me, but we're hooking up. Why? Because we want to fulfill our urges, our desires. And so we separate love and sex. The other way we've confused 
love and sex is we have tried to make sex and love synonymous with each other. So that now great love means great sex, and great sex means great love. And both mistakes have led to the destruction of countless relationships in our society today. Now all this should kind of make us stop. It should make us stop and and consider a warning that I want to give to us in the beginning of this message. Notice the warning here in your notes, coming up on the screen. The warning is this. When we fail to understand the difference between love and sex, we are doomed to failure in both our relationships and our sexuality. So let's explore the difference between love and sex. And as we've already discovered, our source of information needs to be someone wiser than other confused human beings in our culture and society. Our source of information, hey, after all, it ought to be the one who created love and sex. That should be our authority for understanding what we are so confused about. Again, another reason why we are going to God's Word. We want to get God's perspective on this topic, on this issue that consumes our lives. All right, so are you ready to dive into it? Exploring the difference, what God says about love and sex. Number one, let's look at the historical setting. The historical setting, sex in the city of Ephesus. Perhaps some of you are wondering, even now, can an ancient book like the Bible still have anything relevant to say today, especially on the topic of love and sex? Well, let me share with you some historical background that may be a little surprising. Believe it or not, there was sex in the city long before Hollywood created the TV show Sex in the City. Notice, number one here, Paul's day was one of the most sex-saturated cultures in history. In spite of what you have probably heard, we do not live in the most sex-saturated culture in history. Certain ancient cultures in history have set the bar for immorality very, very, very low. In fact, the Apostle Paul lived in one of the most sex-saturated societies in history. Which brings us to number two. Look at this, the second observation. Paul was writing to Christians, or I like to use the word Christ followers. He was writing to Christ followers or Christians in the city of Ephesus where any and all sexual activity was a normal part of everyday life. In fact, this is not interesting, but just a fact here. Sex was so casual in Paul's day, it wasn't even viewed as a sin. It was just viewed as normal. It's just what you did. In fact, the city of Ephesus hosted a religion that was centered on sex. In Ephesus, there were large temples that were dedicated to the worship of the fertility god Diana. And inside her temple, worship consisted of sexual acts with hundreds of temple prostitutes, which basically meant that men had sex available in the morning, afternoon, and night. And it wasn't seen as anything wrong. It was just a normal part of culture and society in Paul's day there in the city of Ephesus in which there is a church of Christ followers that Paul is now writing to. These Christians, these followers, remember going back, they are now believers in Christ. They've been born again in Christ through faith in Christ. And Paul now tells them, imitate God. 
Live out your identity in Christ as dear children of God. You've been loved by God. You've experienced His love through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Paul comes to them because their culture, their past life, is consumed by sex. It's not really much different than our society, is it? So given this glimpse of history, it is rather remarkable that people from that culture in Paul's day were the first recipients of God's instructions here now for love and sex and marriage. The idea that a woman was to be cherished and loved wasn't even considered in Paul's day. No doubt about it. God's message about love and sex, let me tell you, it was revolutionary in Paul's day, just as it may now seem revolutionary in our day today. So what did God say about love and sex that is still so relevant for us today? Well, notice point number two, the command. Here's the basic command that God gives to us through the Apostle Paul. We looked at this a little bit last week. The command is simply to walk in love. You're a follower of Christ. Walk in love. Be an imitator of him. And how are we to walk in love in our relationships? Well, God tells us how in two ways. He gives us a positive command, and he gives us a negative command of not what to do. So first he tells us what to do in walking in love, and then he tells us what not to do in walking in love. Notice the first one. Walking in love, it means to be giving. It means to be caring, to be sacrificial and unselfish toward others, especially in relationships with the opposite sex. Again, this is what we talked about last week in God's model for our lasting relationship. Notice the verses again. Pastor Chris read them for us, but let's look at them one more time. God's word here, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, look at it, or they're in your notes. He says, therefore, be imitators of God, or followers of God, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And what does imitating God look like? What does it mean to walk in love as Christ loved us? What does this look like? Well, the answer is seen in the previous verse here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where it says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. And again, we explored all this last Sunday, so I don't want to repeat it all. But again, just a little review here. So the kind of love we are to walk in, Paul now tells us in verse 3, is not to be defined by a three-letter word called sex. You don't walk in love through the act of sex. Rather, walking in love is to be defined by a nine-letter word called sex sacrifice. And this is the example that Jesus gave to us. And we look briefly at this idea, these two words of an offering and a sweet-smelling aroma, and it takes us back to the sacrifice of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. And so there's no way around this. Then when you look at Jesus and what he did for us through the cross, and we're now to imitate him. We're to be what? We are Christ's followers. And so we walk in love like Christ loved us. We don't walk in love through the act of sex, but we walk in love through the giving of ourselves and the dying of self 
for another person who maybe doesn't even deserve it in our minds, whether that's our spouse, or it's a coworker, or it's another believer here in our church, or it's a neighbor, or maybe it's the person you're engaged to or the person you're in a relationship with. It doesn't matter. Negatively, notice what walking in love means. It means to refuse now to take, exploit, cheapen, defraud, or substitute sexual activity for genuine love and authentic intimacy. In these next verses here, verses 3 through 6, Paul gives us a picture of the negative results that occur when we fail to walk in love or to understand the difference between love and sex. Notice again, let's look at it one more time, verses 4 and 5. Look at it with me in your Bibles or in your notes. He says, but fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Why? And here's why he tells us. Because it's not fitting for saints. He's now taking us back up to verse 1. Who are we? We're dearly beloved children of God. And and this word saint, it doesn't refer to old people, okay? The word saint here refers to Christ's followers. Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Then your position before God is you are a, I love it, a saint. So I can now say I'm a saint. Not perfectly. Who's a saint perfectly? Nobody is. But that's our position in Christ before God. And this shouldn't characterize us. Why? Because God's doing a work in my life. He's changing me. I've been born again. All right? So as it's not fitting for saints, he continues in verse 5, and then let neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting either, but rather giving of thanks. Now, in order to understand and embrace this revolutionary message, because let's be honest, these verses right here are counterculture to the society in which we live. We've got to remember that sex, and even the idea, the act of sex, is not wrong. Listen, God is not a sex killjoy. Sex is God's idea, not man's. God thought it up. He invented it, and he gave it to us. And to that we say what? Glory, Glory. absolutely. What a great gift God has given to us. So God is not a sex killjoy here. God is the one who created sex for our enjoyment. And so sex is... it's not a, quote, sin to be avoided, but rather a gift to be cherished. And you must come to it with that understanding, that mindset. But here's what's true about all of us. We want genuine intimacy. Who here does not want that? We want to have relationships that matter. We long to love someone and to be loved and to be cherished by someone else. And we've already seen that the way to achieve those goals involves walking in love as dearly beloved children of God. But now it's time to see what walking in love looks like from a negative side. What it does not mean. And Paul is very specific here on what walking in love does not mean, what it should not be included in and characterize our lives as Christ followers now. In other words, in these two verses, 
Paul was telling us that certain things, get this, will destroy love. It will destroy relationships. And all of us can testify to that matter, either personally or through the experience of someone else. God is giving us here, and listen, it's a beautiful thing that he does this because it communicates his love and concern for us. God is giving us some crucial warnings in these two verses that we ought to take heed to, that we ought to pay attention to. God, the creator of love and sex, is telling us that if we're going to love somebody, we will not take, we will not exploit, cheapen, or defraud that person. We won't engage in sexual activity in order to create this pseudo-intimacy that's a cheap imitation of authentic intimacy. Now, with that in mind here, there's three specific words that we need to take notice of. Three words in this verse that deserve our attention. And the first word that Paul uses here is fornication. Fornication. In some of your Bibles, this word also may be translated as immorality. This first word comes from the Greek word pornea, and immediately you can hear in that Greek word pornea our English word in which we get the word pornography. This word fornication or immorality, listen to me, it refers to any and all sexual activity either before marriage or if you're married outside of marriage, and let me just quickly define here marriage, because our culture is now redefining marriage, but God's definition of marriage is what? You could go all the way back to Genesis. Paul repeats it here in Ephesians. We'll look at it later on in the series, but marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's God's plan for marriage. It's his ideal plan for marriage. And yes, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? But through God's grace, he can restore even marriages that end in divorce. He can make all things new again. Not without consequences, not always without scars and regret. But many of you hear our testimony to God's grace through a marriage that blew up. Amen? Right? We have a gracious God. We'll look at this a little later on. Okay? But fornication here refers to all sexual activity before marriage or outside of marriage. In fact, oftentimes in the Bible, the word fornication will refer to premarital sex. The other word that's sometimes used in the Bible, which is now part of our cultural vernacular, is the word adultery. And of course, we all understand adultery is sometimes, it mostly refers to, or almost always refers to someone who's married that then has sex outside of their marriage. So you have this fornication and adultery. Fornication, sex before marriage, adultery, sex while you're married, but outside of your current marriage. This word that Paul uses is general. He's using a word for immorality that covers all of it. And basically, God is teaching us here that premarital sex and extramarital sex is wrong and is contrary to his will. In fact, Paul then states in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, he tells us this is your sanctification. God's will, he says a verbatim, is to avoid sexual immorality. The same word here, same idea. God's will is for me to avoid this. Why? Not because sex isn't fun or exciting, it is. But because sex before marriage or outside of marriage, listen, it is unloving. And it goes against God's will for healthy, lasting, 
loving relationships. And it won't deliver what it advertises. The second word that we should take notice of is uh, the word uncleanness. Uncleanness. And again, your, some of your Bibles may have the word impurity. The word uncleanness is also translated as impurity. This word just means any indulgence of sex at the cost of someone else. It describes sexual behavior that defrauds, uses, or manipulates another person. It refers to sexual attitudes that withhold dignity and respect for other people. Uncleanness also refers to, it's not just outside the body, but it also refers to inside of soul pollution. In other words, it refers to immoral thoughts and ideas and fantasies and every other form of sexual corruption within the heart, within the soul. And normally, it begins through the eye gate here, goes to our minds and into our heart, and we're polluted and corrupted sexually, sensually. And we need cleansing from that. This is the idea here. And then number three, this third word is covetousness, which can also translated as greed. And in the context here, normally we think of covetousness or greed. I'm greedy for money, right? That's what we think of. And that's true. But in here, in this context, covetousness isn't so much about greed for money, but greed for someone else's body for sexual gratification. It describes sexual lust that gradually consumes a person. It's what drives the pursuit of sexual immorality and impurity. What, what motivates that? What drives sexual immorality and impurity? It's, it's greed, sexual greed. And it's never, it's never satisfied, so it always wants, mo- wants more. You ever wonder why uh, addiction to pornography, why it's so hard to stop? It's sexual greed. You can never fulfill it. It always wants more, and it wants more in a bigger, more tantalizing way. That's what this is referring to here. This attitude sees someone else as an object to exploit for personal pleasure without regard to the damage it does. Now, step back for a moment. Just take a deep breath. These three words, these three acts, if you will, whether in our minds or in our words or even in our deeds. Listen, these three acts consume, take, exploit, and cheapen a relationship. No woman here wants to be with her husband when his mind is on pictures that he's mentally downloaded from the internet. No man here wants to be with his wife if her mind is consumed by fantasies inflamed by romance novels, magazines, or Facebook flirtations. The reality is, immorality, impurity, and sexual greed undermines and destroys relationships. Paul then gives us three more things that he says are not fitting for us as saints or as Christ followers. In verse 4, he goes on to tell us to reject. Did you notice this in verse 4? Look at it. He says to reject filthiness, foolish talking, and coarse jesting. And to replace it with what? What does he say to replace it with? The giving of thanks. Woo! Now that's interesting. That's one phrase that definitely deserves our application. 
This phrase, giving of thanks. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Thanksgiving or gratefulness is an expression of unselfishness, which is seen in the way we think of or treat the opposite sex. Now, follow, follow the logic here. Follow the thinking of Paul as he writes this, okay? Because right now it's so easy. Giving of thanks, what's that got to do with love and sex? I don't get it, Paul. Stay with me, all right? If sexual immorality is driven by sexual greed, covetousness, and covetousness is a deep, discontented craving that dominates your life, then it's clear that the opposite experience of that would be thanksgiving or gratitude. In other words, if you are overwhelming, if you are overflowing, with thanksgiving to God, then you are not dominated and driven by discontentment what you have been denied. Gratitude is what you feel when you believe God is for you and not against you. It's what you feel when you believe that God has given you only what is good for you and He withholds no good thing from you, whether you're single or married here. That's why later on in the same chapter... Ephesians 5, later on in verse 20, Paul says this, Always and for everything give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Whether I'm single, whether I'm married, or single again, makes no difference. So, here we go. Listen, thanksgiving then, here's what Paul's saying to us. Thanksgiving is the alternative. It's the opposite of to a life that's driven by cravings for what you don't have, whether those cravings are for money or for possessions or for sex. Thanksgiving says, listen, in God, I have all that is good for me, and I will not be driven to dishonor the worth of his name just to please my sexual desires. Think of it this way. When I'm grateful for the relationship that I have with my wife, then I will find it very hard to get interested in another woman. Why? Because I cannot consciously and intentionally give thanks to God for Darla as his special gift to me and simultaneously feed on thoughts and images of other women. can't be done. So now I hope you see the connection between love and sex and what Paul says here in this idea of giving of thanks. It plays a huge part in this together. Now, Paul goes on because he doesn't stop there. And the question is, well, how high is God's standard for our relationships? Just how high is God's standard for my relationships? Well, notice this in your notes. Coming up on the screen. God says, don't let sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness even be named among you. Why? Because it's not fitting for saints. It's not fitting for Christ followers. For this to characterize us. Now, that's a pretty high standard. Would you admit that that's a pretty high standard? What God is saying here? In fact... You may be thinking, God's standard, whoa, that's too high, too unrealistic. God doesn't understand the American culture we live in. But remember, 
What was the culture like in the city of Ephesus when God first gave these commands to those believers? Man, it was one of the most sex-saturated cultures in all of history. And guess what? Those Christ followers at the city of Ephesus and that little church there were able to live according to these standards in the area of love, sex, and marriage. And no, not perfectly, nobody can, but they chose in the power of God, by His grace, as dear followers, dear children of God, they chose to live according to this standard. They chose to walk in love, even when their culture was walking in lust. And folks, that's what we have today before us here in America. We have a culture that walks in lust, and God is coming to us, and He is calling us as Christ followers to walk in love. And they are diametrically opposed. And that means we have a choice. We have to choose. But all this kind of still raises a $64,000 question for us. Why? Why has God made marriage so seemingly restrictive? I mean, why would God limit sex to be shared with just one person? Why is His standard for our relationship so stinking high? Or to ask the question another way, is marriage designed to restrict and limit our expressions of love, or is marriage... I love this way to answer it. Is marriage designed to protect us and deepen our experience of love? So why does God command us to preserve sex for that one man or one woman in a relationship, marriage relationship? Let me give you a simple answer, then I'll give you the biblical answer here. Because this answer leads into the biblical. The biblical answer tells us this reason why. Because sexual immorality, at the heart of it, listen folks, it destroys relationships first with God and then with others. And the reason it destroys our relationship with God and others, that is sexual immorality, notice this, number three, is because God's wrath comes upon the sexually immoral apart from Jesus Christ. Now let's get honest here. What we see around us in the lives of so many people is ample evidence to force us to admit that something is desperately wrong with the way we are doing relationships in our culture today. We all know the stories of people who have been hurt, they've been used, they've been abused, abandoned, thinking that what they had was really love, only to experience severe disappointment. Listen, our experience, whether your experience personally or the experience of someone else, That experience all tells us here today that sex outside of the boundaries of marriage destroys relationships. It destroys our relationship with God and then it destroys our horizontal relationships with other people. And that's why I want you to walk away from here knowing two things about our God that gives us these commands. All right? Look at this with me in your notes. Please know this. Please embrace this in your heart. Number one, God's standard for our relationships is for our protection. I hope you believe that. God's standard for our relationships is for your protection. Listen, God doesn't want you to experience heartache now in this life 
and his eternal wrath later in the next life. Again, all of us know of marriage relationships that are permanently shattered. And yes, God can bring healing to people and relationships that we think are hopeless. But we also know that scars remain even when healing has taken place. The reality is, some consequences of our choices are for keeps. Look what Paul says here in verses 5 and 6. Paul tells us, he says, for this you know. I love that. Don't gloss over that little phrase. For this you know. And again, some of, we, some of us know it through experience. Some of us know it through other people's experience. But we all know it. For this we know. That no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know what God's doing here? He is coming to us, and he's reminding us out of his love for us, his grace for us, and he's reminding us of certain unavoidable consequences of doing relationships outside of his boundaries. These two verses, maybe you've noticed it here. Isn't it interesting? These two verses include the same three words we saw earlier. Did you pick up those three words? Fornicator, uncleanness, and covetousness. And he uses those same three words now to describe people, this time in this verse, to describe people who will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and will experience the wrath of God. Now, please pay careful attention to what God is saying in these verses. Listen carefully. Notice that these verses don't address anyone who has ever committed an immoral or impure or greedy act. The charge here is leveled against the immoral person, the impure person, and the sexually greedy person. It's the idea of someone whose behavior is characterized by these attitudes. If we say, God, listen, I know you have a plan for relationships, and I know you set some boundaries for sex, but I don't want your plan. And I don't want your plan in my life because I'm going to do my life in relationships my way. Please know, these verses are talking about you. And you are stepping right into the sights of these verses in God's wrath. Yes, we all stumble. Amen? Not amen in the sense that's good, but amen in the sense of agreement. We all stumble. Even when we're seeking to walk in love as Christ followers. But these verses confront those who insist on doing relationships their own way. And this is why Paul calls the sexually immoral. Did you notice that word he used? Idolaters. You're like, what in the world does that have to do? Why does he use idolaters here? What's the deal with that? This word idolater, it describes their desires have, in other words, become their God. In other words, instead of worshiping God, they have dethroned God and replaced Him with their sexual desires to do life the way they want to do life in relationships. 
And Paul says, God's wrath comes upon these people. And this word come that he uses, it's in the present tense, which means we experience aspects of God's wrath now in this day and age. Not all of it, but some of it. And that's why that when we try to do relationships outside of God's plan, it destroys our relationships. We are experiencing the consequences of that. God's wrath is, is coming upon these people, and we are some of these people. In fact, Paul in Corinthians tells us that we used to be these people. But we were now born again. We were saved, and we've been changed. And now Paul comes to us, he says, live as dearly beloved children. Don't let this continue to characterize your life. Because I have something so much better for you. I want you to experience to the max what I give in the area of love, sex, and marriage. Now, let's just stop here for a moment because we don't think often or clearly enough about God's wrath, do we? I mean, I mean come on. Who wants to think about God's wrath? Right? And yet you can't avoid it in this passage. Folks, listen to me. We need to understand that God hates sin. And especially sexual sins. It makes him angry with a holy and just anger. You say, why? Well, the Bible tells us why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Listen to these verses. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen, you are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, do Christ's followers fall into these sins? And the answer is, yes, of course they do. We do. But listen to me, true Christ followers will not persist in these sins. They will repent of their sin. They will receive God's forgiveness, and they will begin walking in God's love again. That's what characterizes true Christ followers. Why? Because true Christ followers know that God's standard for our relationships is for my protection. It's for my benefit. God doesn't want you to experience heartache and pain in this life, nor the eternal consequences in the next life. Which brings us to a second reason to embrace God's plan for relationships. Notice this, God's concern. God's concern for our relationships flows from his compassion. God wants you to enjoy his best now and for all eternity in his coming kingdom. Now, I've said this before. In fact, I stole this from pastor and author John Piper. And when I first read this quote, I was like, man, I love this quote. And I've stated it here, but I want to say it again. Listen to me carefully. God is not a killjoy. How many believe that? I mean, you believe it with all your heart. My God is not a killjoy. But listen, God is against what kills joy. And nothing kills joy faster in a relationship than sexual immorality. Do you know what God wants for you? Let me just describe a little bit. God wants you to have a relationship where you can trust that person. 
There's no other person in that relationship. There's emotional oneness, there's spiritual oneness, and there's physical oneness. God wants you to keep the marriage bed holy. He wants you to celebrate sexuality with the approval of Him. No guilt, no baggage, no comparing yourself or your mate with any other person. God loves you so much that He wants that kind of life for you. He wants you to enjoy His best when it comes to love, sex, and marriage. And that's why He gives us His plan, His model. Now, as we come to this conclusion, I realize that some people probably are still thinking, I don't know, Bruce, God's standards for relationships is just, it's outdated, it's unrealistic, and it's too restricted for the world we live in today. How can we live to this? And that's why the Apostle Paul reminds us in verse 6. Look at it with me. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Folks, listen to me. Don't let the culture deceive you with their empty words about love, sex, and marriage. They have a message. And I'm afraid too many Christ followers are being deceived by our culture's message in this area. Don't let your friends, don't let your Facebook friends, don't let your co-workers, don't even let other Christians that are trying to tell you it's okay. Don't be deceived by empty words. Another translation says, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse their sins. Listen, God pleads with you. I am the creator of relationships and sex. Follow my plan. Don't be fooled by the culture in which you live. God loves you. And he wants us to know that when we ignore his plan, when we take our sexuality outside of the marriage box, it will destroy our relationships with him and others. And that's why God tells us the key. He goes back to verse 1 and verse 2. To walk in love as dearly beloved children. In other words, live out your identity in Christ. So where do we go from here? Well, first, wherever you find yourself today, please know there's hope for you with God's grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? There is hope for every one of us here this morning. Wherever you may be in this process, there's hope for you with the power of God's grace and the work of Jesus Christ on his, with his death on the cross and his resurrection. No one is beyond the hope of the gospel. Here's what I'm secondly going to ask you to do, is to make a decision this morning about your sexuality and your relationships. And that decision is this. Commit to living according to God's standard of purity in your relationships. Whether you're married, whether you're single again, whether you're currently single, whatever relational state you are in, you make a decision. During our response time this morning, I commit to live to God's standard, not the world's standard, for my relationships. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but God, by your grace, I'm going to seek to do it. I'm going to strive to do it. Will you make that decision this morning? Will you make that commitment within your heart to God as a Christ follower? 
Allow me to close with a simple word here, a word of hope for all of us. And perhaps you've li- as you've listened, some pictures have come into your mind of people you've hurt or times that you've been hurt. And now you wonder, man, Bruce, I don't know, will God really forgive me of some of my sins of my past? Or even all the stuff that I'm involved in right now. Will God really forgive me? Well, let's let God answer that question. Look in your notes here at the bottom. Coming up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. God says this. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Do you know what this verse means for us this morning? It means you can repent of your sin today. It means you can come to God and you can receive His forgiveness for any and all sexual sin. Think of it this way. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, He died for all of our sins. He didn't just leave out the sexual sins. Those were not excluded when He died on the cross. His death on the cross, His payment for sin included our sexual sins of our past and even in the present. And so we can now come to God with a repentant heart where we acknowledge, God, Your way is the best way. I have been following my culture and it's not working. It doesn't work. It goes against Your Word. And I repent of that and I ask You to forgive me. I want to follow Your plan and your standard of purity in my relationships from this day forward. And I will seek to do so by the power of your grace and the hope of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads. This morning, perhaps you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord. Listen, your first step in this process is to come to Christ and to receive Him by faith as your Savior and Lord. And to escape His coming wrath of eternal judgment for our sins. Christ offers Himself for you this morning to repent of your sins and to claim Christ as your Savior if you will cry out to Him right where you're seated right in your pew. For those of you that already know Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you to repent of your sins if you need to. And to claim Christ's forgiveness, He promises that He will forgive and cleanse us and make us righteous all over again. And to begin walking in love as dearly beloved children of God. Wherever you're at, We use this time to respond right where you're seated as the praise team sings.